I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light On, Light Through, episode 126, Politics and Media in History. Well, as some of you may know, I'm currently teaching a course for Fordham University called Digital Media and Public Responsibility. And, of course, in this COVID age, it's July 2020, I'm teaching the course totally online. Part of the course is asynchronous. The students do their own videos and upload them, and we talk about those. And part of the course is synchronous. I give live lectures a few times a week through Zoom. And I thought today I'd share with you one of the lectures I have given just this week on a very important topic with all kinds of applications. It's the relationship of media and politics throughout history. And I thought I'd put this up as an audio podcast for those of you who like audio. I recently put up a video of another lecture I gave this week on Black Lives Matter and video. You can find a link to that on the lightonlightthrough.com webpage, or you can just search for Paul Levinson on YouTube. But I thought I'd make this little lecture available through audio only. And I talk about everything from the role of literacy in ancient Athens up until today and the role that Twitter plays in our politics, especially presidential politics these days. So here then is my lecture. The sound quality is not the greatest. And I'll be back soon, maybe with another lecture, maybe with something else. The Light on Light Through podcast so let me begin by going way, way back in history, all the way back to ancient Athens, which, as some of you may know, is considered to be the birthplace of democracy. Now, we don't know anything for sure about what happened back then, precisely because there weren't that many media back in ancient Athens. And if we're talking about the birth of democracy in ancient Athens, and you know a little bit about Greek history, someone like Pericles or Socrates. By the way, I'm sure there were women who were active back then, but uh, they didn't get much credit uh, from the historians who wrote about that, because I guess they were male chauvinists. Uh, so really, all we know about are the men back then. But we do know we're talking about a time that's around 400 B.C. And as it began moving forward, we're talking about 375 B.C. And back then, there certainly were no social media. Not only that, there weren't any electronic media, no radio or television. Not only that, they didn't even have newspapers back in ancient Athens because the printing press actually, although the printing press had been invented in a very preliminary way in China already by then, it hadn't reached 
the European part of the world. So there was no printing back then. So what they did have back then was something that turned out to be very, very crucial. And many historians, including Marshall McLuhan, who I write about in one of the two very slim required books. And by the way, let me just mention here, when I say required books, there are, as I also said yesterday, we're not going to have any tests in this class. So you don't have to read the book or any book from the point of view had better read this so I'll know how to answer on the test. But I made the books required because they'll help you in your research. Whatever topic you'll choose, you'll find lots of leads in those uh, two books. So we'll talk a little more about that later as well. But Marshall McLuhan, whose name is in the title of one of those books, McLuhan in an Age of Social Media. McLuhan died in 1980, so he didn't know about social media either, but he studied both the current media of his day, television, radio, and newspapers, and he thought about the media that were important in history and continue to be important. And one of the points that McLuhan made and this gets us right into politics, is that the very nature of democracy was something that was supported by the fact that the ancient Greeks were one of the first societies that became literate, meaning a large percentage of the population back then could read. You know, a lot of times when we talk about literacy, we sort of pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, we're literate now. And you know, hundreds of years ago, most people were not literate. That's not completely true across history. In fact, there were times uh, in history when there were over 90% of the population that was literate. And one of the times, actually was in the ancient Greek world. And the, uh, the city that had the most literacy was not ancient Athens. That came a few hundred years later in a city called Alexandria, which like Athens still exists today in Egypt. And in ancient Alexandria, more than 90% of the population was literate. People actually took surveys back then. And that included women as well as men. And not only that, it included citizens of Alexandria and people called barbarians, meaning they came from other countries. We would call uh, those people not barbarians today, but immigrants. But the point is they were treated in many ways far better in ancient Alexandria than immigrants are treated right here in the United States today. But back around 400 AD in Athens, there weren't 90% of the population who were literate, but there was a sizable percentage of the population who could read and write. So why was this important for democracy? It's because people for the first time could know what the law was, not based on what someone told them, but what people could read for themselves. They could pick up a document and see themselves 
what laws they were living under. And then they could decide to vote uh, on various issues that the people in ancient Athens had what's called the direct democracy, not like ours where we elect people to the House of Representatives or the Senate, uh, and then they decide for us. And the only power we have, right, is we can vote them out of office next time they're up for election if we don't like what they're doing. But uh, in ancient Athens, they just got together in big groups. It's a good thing they didn't have uh, COVID-19 back then. Otherwise, they probably all would have gotten sick. And who knows if uh, any of them would have survived. Because the way they practiced their democracy was not just going to a voting booth, it was to be sitting in a big arena. But the fact that everyone in that arena was able to read the laws made it easier for people to debate issues. And to this very day, the written law here in the United States and in other democracies in the world that's the supreme law of the United States. In the month of June, which is coming to an end, the Supreme Court of the United States every year releases its decisions on major issues. And, you know, it's good to keep track of what those decisions were. And this time there were some very uh, big decisions. The Supreme Court voted five to four not to overturn DACA. Uh, the Supreme Court voted five to four just a couple of days ago not to support a, uh, an anti-abortion law in Louisiana. And what's going on there is the Supreme Court is saying, hey, this might be your political opinion, but we have a constitution. We're going to look at it and we're going to decide whether or not this law is in accordance with the constitution. Now, we might not agree with what the Supreme Court does. So this has nothing to do with whether you're a progressive or a conservative. But it does have to do with how a democracy can function, how it needs to function. And again, here I'll uh, indicate, as you know, uh, my criticism of President Trump. Often he talks as if he can just do whatever he wants. And on the DACA decision, he has said, uh, you know, many times, hey, I'm just not going to let anybody from outside the United States from certain countries come in here. I'm going to uh, build a uh, wall. And um, the Supreme Court is saying they actually didn't address the wall issue, but another thing that Trump tried to do is take away the rights that DACA recipients had. And the Supreme Court said, no, Trump can't do that. He's president of the United States, yes, but that's not in accordance with how the Constitution operates. So that's a, a perfect example of why the written word and why the literacy in uh, the ancient world uh, was so important. And I could devote a whole course. And in fact, there are whole courses of studies. There are people who have degrees in studying the ancient world and the politics of the ancient world.
So this is just one example a long, long time ago of the impact of, in this case, the written word, not a social medium, not television, not radio, not even newspapers, just plain literacy. And as a matter of fact, there are examples throughout history. And uh, because, again, this course is more than just the history of democracy and media, uh, I'm not going to spend any more time on the ancient world. But we'll get into our little time machine now and zoom forward in history. Uh, to a time in Europe, uh, just a few years before Columbus sailed across the Atlantic Ocean and the European expansion into what would become the United States uh, began. And uh, we're talking now about the end of the 1450s. And as I mentioned, in ancient Athens, they did not have uh, a printing press. But by the 1400s in Europe, several people began inventing what we today call the printing press. And the great advantage of the printing press uh, is that you don't have to write everything down on a piece of paper or parchment in order to write and publish something. You can write something once, then you bring it to a printer, and the printer can print up a huge number of copies. That proved to be an extraordinarily important development that had all kinds of consequences. In fact, one of the consequences was indeed the European, some would call invasion of North America, others would might call it the discovery of North America, whatever it's called, uh, it was the Europeans and their culture coming over here to where we are uh, now. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I will mention that it turns out Columbus was not the first European who sailed across the Atlantic Ocean and landed in North America. Does anybody know who the first European was, by the way, not Columbus? Anybody want to raise their hand and answer? Leif Erikson, yes, thank you. What was that? Uh, I didn't oh, I don't know, there was... Go ahead. I thought Amerigo Vespucci, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Okay. He actually was a little after Columbus, but uh, he was around the same time as Columbus. Uh, so but that was that was a good answer. But actually, the best answer was uh, Paul at the uh, bottom of the screen. He said Leif Erikson. Leif Erikson got here at one around 1000 A.D. That's almost 500 years before Columbus. But that did not initiate an age of discovery. And who knows why, but here is a very plausible explanation. By the way, if you're interested in more of this, uh, I will uh, mention one of my other books. I uh, had the self-control not to make it required or even recommended to you. But if you want to take a look at it, the 
probably a lot of used copies you can pick up for next to nothing. It's called The Soft Edge, A Natural History and Future of the Information Revolution. And one of the points I make in that book is that the problem with Leif Erikson's voyage is that nobody knew about it. I mean, the Norse, the Vikings, they knew about it, but they didn't have a printing press in 1000 AD. So they were very excited about it, but the only way that information about their discovery of this big, huge landmass we now call North America, the only way it got out to other people was late at night around flickering fires. The Norse told stories of their discovery to other Norsemen, and it was spread very slowly by word of mouth. And by the time it got to Europe itself, the people there just thought it was a myth. They thought it was just another Norse legend, just like the Norse have stories about uh, Thor, the great god who throws down thunder, and all the other mythology. They didn't believe that it actually happened. But now, in the year 1492, the printing press in Europe has been around now for almost 50 years. Columbus sails across the ocean, comes back to Europe, and his son, who understandably was really impressed with his father's uh, trip, was so excited about it that he, he, his son, Christopher Columbus's son, whose name was Diego Columbus, he actually wrote a little book about his father's voyage. And that book was printed up on the early printing presses of Europe. It became a bestseller in Europe. And one of the results was the age of discovery. So that's sort of political, but there's also another significant thing that happens. And that's at this time in Europe, there were really no democracies. But in the centuries that followed, as the printing press became more and more established and printed up more and more books, many of them political, a new kind of democracy, different from the kind that was in ancient Athens, a representative democracy began to develop in various countries around the world. And Again, we're not going to spend much time on this, but I'll just mention that the American Revolution, which set up the democracy with all its flaws that we now have here in the United States, that also was based on printed materials. And uh, the fact is you have the founding fathers, not only uh, the great uh, generals like George Washington, uh, and people like Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, who got together and created the Constitution. But you also have printers that uh, are largely not known, who basically printed up various documents, including our first Constitution. And also were by this point printing up newspapers and it was the newspapers in the 1790s and in the 1800s which helped really crystallize uh, our American democracy.
So again, media evolved throughout history. Back in ancient Athens, you don't have even a printing press, but you do have the alphabet and therefore ancient literacy. Uh, by the time we get to the American Revolution, there is a printing press. The printing press continues throughout the 1800s as being the only political mass medium. But by the time we get into the 1900s or the 20th century, there is a new medium, a medium that is not based on paper, that is not based on ink. It's based instead on electromagnetic carrier waves. And these waves are discovered by a scientist by the name of Heinrich Hertz, H-E-R-T-Z. Uh, you may find that word familiar because you talk about megahertz and kilohertz if you are at all working in radio even today. That kind of measurement is named after the person who actually uh, discovered those electromagnetic carriers. But that happened in the 1870s, 1880s. It wasn't until around 1900 that Marconi actually put together a device that was able to broadcast electromagnetic carrier waves. And the reason that they're called carrier waves is you can attach a little electronic signal to the electromagnetic carrier wave that gets sent out over the airways and anyone who has a receiver can hear that. And eventually, by the 1930s, you have national broadcasting. And this brings us to where we were yesterday when I mentioned Franklin Delano Roosevelt. FDR, for short, who was certainly not a perfect human being. No one is. No one would say that everything he did was great or right. But he did do a lot of very important things, including helping get our country out of the Great Depression and including holding our country together uh, during World War II when uh, the United States and its allies were involved in this major world war. And as I mentioned yesterday, historians, this is not speculation because it didn't happen that long ago, historians all agree that Franklin Delano Roosevelt's ability to talk to people on radio, to address the American people, through his fireside chats was the main way that he was able to inspire the American people and hold the country together. And one really interesting thing is people knew what Roosevelt looked like because there were photographs of him, but there was not yet television. So People really were more familiar with Roosevelt's voice than they were with what he actually looked like. And so many people didn't know, for example, that 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Well, you tell me, see if anyone knows, what disability did Roosevelt have? Anybody know? Polio? Yes, polio. He was in a wheelchair. That's right. And, you know, when he did go out at, at rallies, and of course there was film back then, but what his handlers did is they made sure that uh, unless you were right there with him on stage, the way they brought him on stage, you couldn't really see. Was, you would see his bodyguards all around him. And then Roosevelt would stand up at the podium and nobody would know that uh, he had to be brought in on a, a wheelchair. So, not that he would have somehow not been elected or been an effective president if people had know, known that, but I'm just pointing out that one of the advantages of radio is it doesn't matter what you look like. And, uh, you know, there's obviously a joke about Zoom that, uh, you know, a rather obvious dumb joke that uh, you don't have to be wearing any clothes from the waist down, you know, when you're doing Zoom. Uh, So, uh, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, that joke, it applies even more to radio. You don't have to be wearing any clothes at all, or you can be dressed like a complete slob. It doesn't matter because all that matters is the person's voice. And Roosevelt had a very effective speaking voice. By the way, if you want to hear Roosevelt's voice, just do a search on Fireside Chat, uh, FDR, on Google. And uh, for at least 20 years now, they've had some of his Fireside Chats that you can listen to uh, on uh, on the Internet. And... uh, you can hear just by listening, you know, the quality is not that good, but you can see why he was so effective. He had a real warmth in his voice. My parents, who were alive back then, I, I wasn't, I'm not that old, but they told me that they felt that Roosevelt was like a member of the family. When Roosevelt was talking, it just calmed everybody down, and gave everyone confidence. And as I think I mentioned briefly yesterday, yeah, I did mention that briefly yesterday, uh, I think you can say that uh, someone like Governor Andrew Cuomo achieved at least some of that with his daily briefings during uh, the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic here in New York State. So it's the same principle, talking in a relaxed, intelligent way is a very powerful political tool. But here's an interesting point. Radio existed in the 1930s, not just for Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but for everyone in the world. And so... It turns out that Roosevelt was not the only political leader who effectively utilized radio. So radio was Roosevelt's medium, just as television was JFK's medium, just as Twitter 
was Trump's media. But it was not just Roosevelt's media. For example, in England, we've all heard of Winston Churchill. He's prime minister of England when uh, Nazi Germany is just really on a rampage. It's blitzkrieg. Nazi Germany's blitzkrieg is so successful that it rolls over every European country, except Italy, which is allied with Germany in the 1930s. But it, it gets through France so quickly that the British have to quickly evacuate their military from Dunkirk, which is like a coastal town in France. And they had to do it so quickly, they couldn't even get the British Navy there at times. So, you know, you have all these heroic pictures of people in rowboats and dinghies and little flimsy sailboats, desperately trying to get the soldiers out of France back to England. And the people in England were definitely afraid. They thought they were going to be next. They thought it was just a matter of months, even weeks, before they too were under Nazi control. And Winston Churchill, prime minister, got on the radio and gave a speech. Uh, it's now known as the Blood, Sweat and Tears speech. Again, you can listen to that uh, as well if you're interested. He also had a very effective speaking voice. Uh, he spoke in really ringing terms. And his famous line, we have nothing to give but blood, sweat, and tears. That's what he said the Brits would use if they didn't even have any weapons. He said, we'll fight them on the beaches. We'll fight them on the streets. And historians credit that speech delivered on radio with rousing the British people. And they put up a great fight and they held off the Nazis until the United States uh, got into the war and the tide began to turn against Nazi Germany. Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill are generally considered to be good guys in history. I mean, I guess someone who loves Nazi Germany wouldn't consider them good guys, but most people do consider them good guys. They think that it's good that Roosevelt was president here in the United States in the 1930s and Churchill was prime minister in England. Both of those men use radio effectively. But don't make the mistake of thinking that only good guys, only good people can use a new medium effectively. Media are always two-edged swords. You know, some people think a particular medium might be uh, like a pillow. You know, it's just something that is nice. You put your head on when you go to sleep at night. But in the hands of a murderer, a pillow can be used to suffocate somebody. Some people think that guns are bad. I, I'm one of them. I wish there were fewer guns in this country. 
I wish fewer people had guns. I wish even our police weren't armed with guns. You know, there are many countries in the world, like England, where the police don't regularly carry these lethal weapons. But even a gun can be used for good. It's like you're, I don't know, out in the wilderness starving to death and you're getting weaker and weaker. And like you see a little rabbit not that far away, you're too weak to run after it. Now I feel, I would feel bad about shooting that rabbit, but that's better than dying, right? And you know, it, 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 in the end, you as a human being, uh, if you need to live, and the way the only way you can live is to is to kill an innocent animal, you know, what are you going to do? So the gun can be helpful in that sense. It's not just bad. But if you think about it, since a gun can be used for good, since a pillow can be used for bad, that means that all technologies are actually neither like guns or pillows. They are like knives, which can be used to slice up an apple. That's nice, right? Or... In the hands of a psycho, they can be used to slit someone's throat. That's the way all media are. They're like knives. They can be used for good or bad. And so you know who else loved radio? It was this guy's favorite medium. And unlike Roosevelt and Churchill, this guy hated newspapers. He loved radio. He hated reporters. He was it Adolf Hitler? Was it, was it who? Was it Hitler? Yes, done. Adolf Hitler. Now, one thing about, you know, people like Hitler, you know, and this is true of any tyrant or any would-be tyrant, it's not as if they start out being, hey, you know, they're really good people, they're these great humanitarians, and then suddenly they turn into tyrants. No, they, they don't keep uh, their ideas secret. They let everybody know about what they want to do and what they think is right or wrong. So even back in the 1920s, Hitler was saying things like, he hates the press. In fact, the Nazis had a name for the press. They called the press the Lugenpresse. Anybody know what that means, the Lugenpresse? Well, it means the lying press. Does that sound familiar, the lying press? A little like, hey, you're fake news. I'm not going to answer your question. That's Trump to Jim Acosta as early as January 2017? Well, I'm not saying that Trump is as bad as Hitler, but what I am saying is they do share something in common. They both hate, hated, in Hitler's case, the press. And in Hitler's case, he had a great solution to his dislike of the press. He hated the press because he thought the press never got his ideas correctly. He thought his press got in the way, the press in Germany got in the way of Hitler communicating to the German people. 
Hitler was convinced that the German people loved him and his ideas. And the only reason anyone was opposed to him was because the press was lying about his ideas. Hence, der Lugenpresse, the lying press. So, Hitler realized, I'm not going to cooperate with the press. I'm going to use this new medium, radio. And that's how Hitler got his connection with the German people. And again, if you listen to some of Hitler's speeches, he was a very good radio speaker. He had an enormous amount of power in his voice. And here's an extremely important point, you know, about media and politics. And this applies all the time. We should never make the mistake of thinking that our political opponents and enemies are stupid and don't understand the media. It's far safer to recognize that it's not that they just stumbled into something and got lucky. They either have a talent for or an understanding of the media of their day. And as a matter of fact, in the case of Hitler, anyone ever hear of a man by the name of Joseph Goebbels? Who is Joseph yeah. Goebbels? Well, he's the he, propaganda minister. That's right. I, you know, I'll give uh, the Nazis credit for this. At least they came up with colorful, accurate names. Joseph Goebbels was Hitler's minister of propaganda and popular enlightenment. Right, I mean, they, they came right out with it, you know. Not Minister of Information, Minister of Propaganda. You know, they're right out there with it. And uh, Goebbels understood the power of radio as well and encouraged Hitler to use radio as often as Hitler could. But nobody in Germany or anywhere in the world realized the pivotal role that radio would have in extending World War II. And one of the good things, you know, about history, and you should think about this even in your five-minute presentations, if you can come up with like one good example of what you are talking about, one riveting example, that really helps get your point across. And I always thought this was an unbelievably powerful example, what I'm going to tell you about now. Um, you know, there is no single fireside chat from Roosevelt that you can point to that had this significance. And I, I did mention Churchill's address, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. That was pretty significant. But this is even more incredible. As the Second World War continued, by 1943, there were some German generals who were like we have here in the United States, they were military. They were not political. You know how we hear reports all the time, General Mattis quit because he thinks Trump is crazy. And, you know, John Kelly quit because he couldn't work with Trump anymore. Well, it was the same thing. I'm not saying again that Trump is Hitler, but I'm just saying there's a parallel point here. It was the same thing with uh, some of Hitler's generals. By 1943, 
some of Hitler's generals began thinking along the lines of, look, you know, we've done really great. We've conquered all of Europe, but, uh, you know, this war is beginning to drag on. We're not doing that well in North Africa, where Rommel, the German general, originally, again, was just walking across North Africa. But uh, after the United States entered the war, we sent General Patton and our troops into North Africa, and they were beginning to repel General Rommel's army in North Africa. Uh, Hitler made an alliance with Japan. Uh, Japan obviously did very well at the beginning of the war, wiping out a lot of American battleships in Pearl Harbor. By 1943, the tide was beginning to turn. So these German generals said to themselves, listen, this man Hitler is a lunatic. We're trying to tell him, take it easy, you know, be a little bit more strategic. Don't just go in with everything all the time. We're beginning to lose some of these battles. And Hitler didn't listen to them. And so the German generals came up with a plan to assassinate Hitler. And in fact, there have been books and movies written about this. It was a brilliant plan. There was a meeting that was going to take place. And they got a German general who was part of this conspiracy, part of the resistance, to realize that, hey, he could sneak a bomb into this meeting and he'll pretend that he's not feeling well, you know, he'll cough, he'll clear his throat, uh, and at a crucial time, he'll excuse himself and then he'll leave the building and the bomb will blow up. So, the bomb maker made a really powerful bomb, put it all in a suitcase. The day of this high-level meeting arrives, the general comes into the meeting. <coughs> Someone says, bis du krank? That's German for, are you sick? And he says, <coughs> And, you know, okay, uh, he says in German, but I'm going to try to stay for most of the meeting. <laughs> um, he also sits, like, right across the table from Hitler, who was really a brain plant. And he knows that at the appointed time, the bomb is going to explode. So uh, Hitler is talking, you know, his usual talk. We're going to conquer this. We're going to do that. Blah, blah, blah. And the guy like looks at his watch, the guy who brought the bomb in, and he sees like the bomb is gonna go off in like one minute, so <laughs> he excuses himself. He tells him, I'm going out to the bathroom. But rather than going out to the bathroom, he leaves the building and gets into a car that's waiting for him and they drive away and <laughs> the bomb blows up. As I'm sure you know from history, this did not result in Hitler being killed, and it did not end the Second World War. Here's what happened. The plan was a flawless plan. 
but the conspirators made one crucial mistake. They didn't take into account that the table around which this meeting was taking place was a steel table. It was literally a, a powerful steel table with wood over it, but it had like a steel underpinning. And not only that, it was one of these tables, like you ever sit like at these tables where there's like a flap that like you put down like, you know, uh, you know, from the table, it goes below your knees. It's almost like a modesty flap, or maybe you can open it up and, and you have a, um, you know, bigger table. Well, this was that kind of thing. So it was a table made of steel at, with these flaps that were put down around the table. So the bomb goes off. It's a powerful bomb. But unfortunately for the world, that steel underpinning absorbs a lot of the power of the bomb. Hitler is hurt, but he's not killed. He's rushed to the hospital. No one knows what state Hitler is in. The German generals who had planned all this, they put out an announcement, the Fuhrer has been killed, you know, we're now taking over. But Joseph Goebbels says, no, the Fuhrer has not been killed. He's been hurt, but he is now in the hospital and he's quickly recovering. There are a large number of German generals who are in the middle. If Hitler has really been killed, they will happily join these German conspiratorial generals and form a new government and make peace with the United States and England. But if Hitler is still alive, that's the last thing that they're going to do because they don't want to be killed. Because these German generals who planted the bomb, if Hitler is alive, the first thing he's going to do is kill them. Everything hangs in the doubts. And all kinds of wild rumors are floating. This, again, is the 1940s. There's no Twitter. Uh, there's, television has been invented already, but it's not used in a mass way. So all that people know is what they hear through the radio. And, you know, the Nazis get on the radio and they say, we assure you the fear is fine. But the German people and, most importantly, the German generals don't know whether or not uh, Hitler is really fine or uh, in, in critical condition on the verge of dying. And Joseph Goebbels, the Minister of Propaganda and Popular Enlightenment, comes up with a brilliant idea. So this is one of the reasons why I say never underestimate your political enemies. Never underestimate your enemies at all. It's always a mistake to think they're stupid and clueless. Joseph Goebbels was neither. And so within an hour, he's up in that German hospital. It turns out that Hitler is not that badly wounded. He's hurt. He's shaken up. You know, how would you feel if a bomb blew up in your face, even if a steel you know, girder absorbed most of the force of the bomb? So Hitler is shaken up. He, he, he has some wounds, but they are minor wounds. And Goebbels says, my God. There's something I must ask you to think about doing. And Hitler says, yeah. And Goebbels, I'll just give you the English translation, says to Hitler, I need you to get on the radio 
and assure the German people that you are okay, that you are alive and well and still in control. That way we'll be able to keep the German generals in check. So that's what they do. And that evening, that is the evening after the bomb blows up in Hitler's face, Hitler gets on the radio, you know, he musters his strength and says in a pretty good voice, you know, my, my fellow Germans, you've probably heard about what those cowardly generals tried to do to me, but I just want to assure you, I am totally safe and sound. I'm with you. And the third Reich is going to continue. And at that moment, at that instant that that radio broadcast went out over Germany, that's when the rebellion collapsed. Because the German generals who were on the fence, they said, hey, I'm not going to go with the uh, you know, rebellion generals. I don't want to be dead. You know, Hitler still has an enormous amount of power. So the war continued in Germany for well over another year because of that one radio broadcast. So there are many, many other examples. I'll just give you one other example of radio. And in fact, in, in the book I mentioned, The Soft Edge, I have a chapter called Radio Heads. And I talk about four heads of state who effectively used radio. FDR, Winston Churchill, Adolf Hitler, and the last person I'll briefly talk to you about is another guy who's not uh, usually considered a good guy in history. In fact, he was responsible for rounding up and killing more people in his country than Hitler was in Germany. Anybody know who this other guy was? This fourth radio head? Played a major role in World War II. I'll give you one hint. You've also heard our own president talk about the press being the enemy of the people. This leader also talked about his press being the enemy of the people, but he rounded people up who he thought were enemies of the people and killed them. Well, his name was Joseph Stalin or in Russian, Stalin. He was the dictator also of the Soviet Union. In World War II, though, the Soviet Union was allied with the United States at any time. And uh, Germany, after they did so well in Europe, one of the reasons that England survived was not only because of Winston Churchill's great oratory, but because the Germans decided, you know what? Doesn't really matter. England's like a small island. Let's turn our attention to this huge country and all its resources, all that food that would give to the German people uh, in uh, the other side of Germany. And that would be the Soviet Union, this huge, sprawling country. And so the German, launch, German army launched a blitzkrieg across the Soviet Union. They sent their Luftwaffe. They, the Luftwaffe strafed uh, the uh, Soviet towns. The German blitzkrieg was starting to move even faster across the Soviet Union than it had across Europe. That was pretty fast. 
and it looked pretty bad for the Soviet Union. Stalin begged Franklin Roosevelt, please send us some troops. Roosevelt would have sent some troops, but we didn't have any troops to send because we were just, you know, getting involved in the war. We hadn't called up all of our troops. And we had our hands, you know, the na our Navy was busy fighting the Japanese and, you know, we were fighting uh, in North Africa. It would be months before we could get any troops to help uh, the Soviet Union. So Stalin's advisors made a crazy suggestion to him. They said, look, the German military is moving so quickly, they're running out of food. We can't possibly send supplies fast enough to get uh, food to them, the German military was saying. So what we have to do is live off the land. You know, we, we have to, in addition to conquer, we have to make sure we harvest enough crops from all of these Russian farms to feed the Germans, to feed the Nazi soldiers. And Stalin's advisors said, you should tell the Russian people to burn their farms and flee in the opposite direction, flee away from Germany towards Moscow, but leave nothing but ashes ahead of the advancing German military. Slaughter your livestock, kill all your chickens, burn all your fields so that the German military will have nothing to eat. This is called the scorched earth policy. But how do you tell the Russian farmers to do that? Well, once again, Stalin gets on the radio. Of the four people that I mentioned, FDR, Churchill, and Hitler, Stalin the fourth was the worst speaker. He did not have a good speaking voice. Um, if we were able through some kind of time machine, uh, bring Stalin into this uh, Zoom lecture, and I were to say, all right, class, uh, I'm gonna take a break for 15 minutes. Here now is my friend, Joseph Stalin. He's gonna to speak to you. And if he spoke English, uh, you probably all dropped the class because it would be like so boring. The guy had like a monotone voice he, and he like very low key. That's pretty much what he sounded like. Not much power in his voice. He was all right physically, but he sounded like he was half dead. Nonetheless, he delivered this scorched earth policy speech and convinced the Russian farmers to burn their crops even though there were no German troops in the area, because for this to work, you had to do it before the German troops arrived. Burn their crops, kill your livestock, get out of there, flee in the opposite direction. And what this indeed did is it slowed down the German military, and eventually, by the time they got to Leningrad, the German military was starving, they couldn't proceed any further. That was the turning point of the war in that particular part of the world. And the Russians eventually got an army together, they counterattacked, and they drove the Nazis back. So, during the 1930s and the 1940s, radio played this crucial role in four incredibly important political situations. As I mentioned yesterday, television uh, 
was the next new medium to come along. Just to show you, though, how quickly television became important, media get introduced at different times. Sometimes it takes much longer than other times for the new medium to catch on. For example, Marconi invented radio in 1900. It wasn't until the 1930s that radio uh, became important. Um, television was invented in the late 1920s, but there was really no television at all until a little during World War II, but it really began to catch on in the late 1940s. And by 1960, more than 90% of Americans had television in their homes. And so this is the setup for what I was talking to you about yesterday. This is why the role of television was so crucial in the Kennedy-Nixon debates. And again, it turns out to be a great example, a great experiment almost, of the power uh, of the visual medium when you have two candidates, both of whom speak pretty well, I mean, I guess, I think Kennedy was probably a somewhat better speaker than Nixon, but Nixon was a pretty good speaker. But he didn't look that good, as I mentioned yesterday. He just didn't look that good on television. I have no idea what he looked like in person. I never saw him. But he's just like one of these guys who like looks sweaty on television, uncomfortable. He never had like a comfortable, relaxed relationship with the camera. Um, I don't know if, if many of you have been on television, but the, 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 the way to be successful on television is you have to like sort of be friends with the camera. It's, uh, it's not something that you have to, you know, put on an act for uh, or look at as a danger to you. You have to sort of embrace it. Kennedy understood that. And that's why, as I mentioned yesterday, the same debate, heard by people on radio, watched by people on television. The people who saw the debate on television uh, thought that John F. Kennedy uh, did far, far better. And that initiated the age of television as the primary political medium. In 1980, for example, the elections between an incumbent president, Jimmy Carter, versus a former uh, Hollywood movie and television star, Ronald Reagan, who also uh, had been governor of California. He uh, was, Reagan, was also very effective on television, relaxed, warm, friendly. That's one of the reasons why he won by a landslide over Jimmy Carter, who was okay on television. He wasn't bad, but he was all right. And we talked about Barack Obama yesterday. And that brings us to uh, Twitter. Um, and we're obviously going to be, and you are going to be looking at and talking about Twitter uh, you know, throughout this term. Um, I'll just say a few uh, brief things about Twitter, and then I want to uh, segue into getting back to your presentations, but it's 11.07, and I want to make sure we have time to go over, uh, for those of you who have not yet uh, chosen your topics, and for those of you who have, if 
just to confirm that that's what you want to do. Uh, and um, we will, um, we have time, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to more of the uh, Twitter uh, and political story. But just actually to make one crucial point about Twitter, and this is a point that I've made before, What's interesting about the relationship of social media and politics and media and politics in general is how media are succeeded by new kinds of technology that offer possibilities to people with different talents. That's really what all of this is about. So if you think about radio versus television, as I said before, it didn't matter what Hitler looked like on television. He actually didn't look that good on television or film. Uh, he, you know, he, he took a good picture, but he looked a little bit like an out-of-control maniac, Hitler did, because he was on television. But radio, he was fine. And we just discussed how Kennedy was much better than Nixon on television. Twitter is the same way. And if you think about the election of 2016, it's not that Hillary Clinton and her campaign was ignorant of Twitter, didn't know how to use Twitter. Twitter had been around. It was introduced in 2006. So you're talking about 10 years. Uh, in 2016. So Twitter has been around a decade. Yeah, if you think about you, you knew about Twitter in 2016. So Hillary Clinton and her campaign, they knew about Twitter. They knew how to tweet. But they did not have the instinct uh, for uh, tweeting that um, the candidates uh, had in 2016 who were not in the Democratic Party. There were some Democrats who understood Twitter, but it turns out there were also a fair number of Republicans who uh, understood Twitter. And the person who understood Twitter the best was Donald Trump. Now, I say understand. Um, I don't know how much Trump uh, really understood or understands of Twitter. So when I say understand, I'm using it in a general sense, understanding in the way that you just have a sense. Uh, you just feel that it's the right thing to do. And Trump, in that sense, understood right away that the great value of Twitter to him is he could communicate directly with his people. He didn't have to answer questions that was posed to him by a reporter as in a press conference. He didn't have to worry about the press saying, well, Trump is saying this, but what about this and that? None of that is in play on Twitter. All you have on Twitter is somebody writing a few words, and if you can connect with people with those words, 
you have this wonderful connection. And as um, we all know, with these uh, devices that we carry with us, uh, you don't even have to sit down somewhere and watch Twitter as you do with television, right? You're carrying around a little phone with you, you can read tweets anytime. This was the great power that Trump tapped into. And before COVID-19 came along, and before George Floyd was murdered, which set off the protest that is still going on, and, and before the still not yet fully realized political consequences of that, uh, before that happened, I was saying, forget about it, a Democrat won't win unless whoever that Democrat is, that Democrat has the same facility for Twitter as Trump has. However, that has changed to some extent because it may well be that uh, COVID and the protests, both of which have been televised, right? The, the again, the Cuomo uh, and Trump and other politicians addresses about what's going on with the pandemic are those have for the most part been television events. And so when we get back to me lecturing again to you tomorrow, I'll pick up that part of the story of politics and social media. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that not-so-little lecture on politics and media in history. I'll try to come back here with a few more lectures that I'll be giving this term online. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, you can also find videos of other lectures of mine on my YouTube channel. Just search for Paul Levinson on YouTube. So I look forward to seeing you back here or you hearing me back here soon. In the meantime, enjoy. Athens, 2042 AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries.